All right, well, tonight's scripture reading is from uh, Genesis 3. It's verses 1 through 7. Our, our teaching will be based on it. Uh, after the reading, our kids are dismissed. Uh, the, the kids up to fifth grade can come to the northern door here, and our middle school and high schoolers go to the western door to their respective classes. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's word. We'll talk about it in a second. Uh, kids, you're dismissed. Uh, students as well. Be ready to report back, kids. All right, so it's been a couple weeks since we were uh, in Genesis together. We took last week off for the Renew Polk prayer meeting. Uh, and so tonight, uh, I'll just want to refresh your memory a little bit about where we've been. Uh, we spent a few weeks in Genesis 2, which is all about or was all about the sanctity of life, uh, human life. What does it mean that humans are holy or created to be holy? What does it mean that we have dignity and worth and value? And we learn that all of it comes from God. Our connection to God and specifically to his word is what gives human beings value. Uh, I noted at the very end, and we didn't get a lot of time to talk about it, but I noted that verses 18 through 25 of chapter 2 are some of the most controversial verses in the whole Bible today. Uh, now, it wasn't always that way. Uh, for a long time, those verses carried no controversy uh, because the verses were about things like gender, that human beings were made male and female, marriage, that a man and a woman are married for life, uh, sexuality, human, the human place, the place in human life of sexuality, th things like that. There wasn't a whole lot of controversy until relatively recently but today, when people read those verses, how many questions do people raise, do you think, about each of those points? A lots of questions. I mean, there's, questions are dizzying. I mean, for, it starts with, hey, could, did God really make women out of the rib of men? And, you know, didn't we come from pre-existing uh, hominids or other sort of life forms through evolution and did God really like make a man out of dust and then take a rib out of the man and literally make it into a woman and 
And then it goes to, well, isn't it demeaning to say that women were made after men and from men and even for men, as it says there, to be a helper, fit and corresponding to man? Isn't that that defensive? To a lot of people it is. And then, of course, there's marriage. We don't have any questions about marriage, do we? There's lots of them, right? Like how permanent are marriages supposed to be? Are marriages just relationships of convenience? Uh, Is marriage just a human construct, you know, a social construct that people invented that we can do away with when we have had enough of it? Uh, Should marriage be between two, a man and a woman, or could a man and a man marry, or a woman and a woman marry, or could three people marry each other together? Uh, So on and so forth. Uh, Now, think about this. And these are serious questions, aren't they? I mean, this is not just like a... These are, these are questions that people legit have and struggles that they have. Many people, in fact, I read or heard something last summer that said the number one reason that young people, and by young I mean uh, Generation Z, so the generation of my children, especially Asher. I think my other children may be in an even lower generation, beside the point. But the number one reason why teenagers and, and young adults give for not believing in Christianity is what? Guess what? Number one reason. God is anti-gay. And I just can't, you can't, I just can't understand that. Why is God anti-gay? That's the number one reason. I was actually very sort of surprised by that, but sort of not surprised by that. Question is, how did we get there? Um, and, I'm, you know, that wasn't a speech just about, you know, kids these days, you know, that kind of like, you know, I'm not just trying to be an old guy, but... How did we get to a place where a passage that, as originally written, had just about zero controversy in it, has now become the most controversial and maybe even the linchpin reason why people don't want to believe in the whole thing? Well, I think there are some things in Genesis chapter 3 that explain that. Do you think so? I think there's some information in what I read to you tonight in verses 1 to 7 of Genesis chapter 3 that could begin to explain why things that God say become controversial to human beings like us. Because that is, after all, according to the Bible, how sin started in the first place. The Word of God suddenly became controversial. And people started trying to re-engineer it as they wanted it to be. And so let me talk to you, if you see your outline there, I want to talk to you through this story of temptation and sin in light of three headings. First of all, I want us to look at what temptation and sin is, what those things are, rather. Uh, Then I want you to see the strategy that temptation often uses. And then lastly, I want you to see what the results of sin are. Okay, What is sin and temptation? What strategy does it often use? And what are the results of it when it has its way? Um, this, is, this is the story not just about, chapter 3 is not just about humanity in general. It's, it's literally about a man, named, a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. But according to the Bible, we believe that because they were our first parents and because they fell, we all fell in them. And that sin begins to infect us all. And so the way in which temptation worked with them is a very much a mirror of the way it works in my heart and in your heart. All right, let's look. First of all, the centrality of the word. What are temptation and sin? Well, notice, where did temptation come from in the beginning? 
the serpent, right? It comes from different sources today besides the serpent. But in order for it to come from those sources, it had to first come from the serpent. So the question, of course, is who is the serpent? Yeah, most of us, if you've been around church for a while, you understand most people kind of get it. It's Satan. And the reason why we believe that to be the case is because throughout the Bible, after this, it refers to Satan as the serpent. Uh, All the way until the book of Revelation, uh, where the great serpent, the dragon, which is just, if you think about it, it's a grown-up, huge serpent, blowing fire, right? That's what a dragon is. Uh, Jesus comes and takes and slays the dragon that had, it said, been deceiving the nations from the beginning of time. And so that's where we get the idea that this snake is not just merely a snake, of course. It's not just a creature in the field. But this snake is Satan in disguise. Uh, We're not going to take the side trail of why did he choose to use a snake and are snakes bad? Should you have them as pets? And... Those are just side questions that don't really matter so much. Uh, At the very least, you could go by verse 1 where it says the serpent was craftier than all the other beasts of the field. And I think all of us would understand we we associate snakes with craftiness. They can slither into tight spaces. Spaces that most things can't get into, a snake can get right up in. They can twirl itself around, you know, the smallest things and hide in there. And so there's some parallel there between what a snake is physically and what Satan is spiritually. Uh, And so maybe that's why he decided to use the form of a snake uh, in order to uh, accentuate his nature as a crafty individual. But temptation came from him. It didn't come from the human beings, from themselves. At this point, man and woman were made upright. They were made to serve God, and they had all the things they needed within. Remember that we talked about it last week, the sanctity of human life. They had all the blessing that God could possibly give for them to live upright with him. And so the temptation came outward to the inside. But then notice, what was it that the temptation was trying to bring from the outside to the inside? It all, isn't it interesting how it all hinged on the word? The word. That was the battleground that, that the snake chose, that the serpent Satan chose, the word of God. That's significant because of what we've been looking at the past several weeks. Uh, human life is sanctified. Human life is devoted to God precisely because God has given to human beings the gift of his word. And has written that word on their hearts. Remember we saw that? God made Adam and Eve, you know, made them from the dust of the ground, breathed his own spirit into them, and then he gave them a covenant. He said, if you'll not eat this tree, you will live. If you'll eat this tree, on that day when you eat it, you will surely die. The word at that moment, the word of God spoken to the man who was able by God's design to hear it, understand it, love it, obey it, do it. The word became the binding agent between God and the creature. And so the snake slithers between God and the creature to try to undo the binding agent, try to peel off the adhesive, which is the word, between God and people. Which brings us really to a very good definition of what temptation and sin are. What is temptation? It's the suggestion that God's word is not true, accurate, sufficient, Obey, obeyable, or doable, or desirable. What is sin? 
Sin is any time we don't do what God in his word tells us to do or don't believe what God in his word tells us to believe. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. The reason for it, the reason why that's the definition of sin and temptation is because when we don't listen to God's word, the glue, the adhesive between us and God peels apart. It ruptures. And so we actually believe, as Christians, you, can't, you cannot define sin without reference to God. And you can't, you can't define right and wrong in general without reference to God. There's no way. You can't just come up with right and wrong based on purely horizontal considerations. Like uh, A lot of times people like to say, well, whatever I want to do is okay as long as I'm not hurting anybody, right? As long as I'm not bothering anybody else. What does it matter what I do as long as I'm not bothering anybody else? What's the problem with that, that definition of sin, which is a definition? Yeah, yeah, like, what about that somebody else? It just completely ignores it as if human life has no, there is not supposed to be no adhesive connection between God and people. As if there really is no such thing as a word of God which binds a human to his creator. It's a, it's a very naturalistic view of humans. Uh, we are just like animals, is what that view says. There's no difference between us and a goat or a cow or any other thing. Uh, but according to Genesis, it's been building this, uh, building this case all the way through chapters 1 and 2. Man is special. Man is a different kind of animal because the very Spirit of God has been breathed into that man and into that woman, made in the image of God, it says. And so the Word becomes a binding agent such that you cannot even begin to ask, what is a human being for without referencing God? And when you try to do that, you will end up going down lots of confusing paths that lead to nowhere. Perhaps this is one of the reasons, the first reasons why we could say the verses at the end of chapter 2 have become so controversial. Because instead of trying to judge things like gender, marriage, sexuality, based on the glue that's supposed to bind us to our maker, we've simply tried to base our answers on how we feel or how other people feel or whether we're hurting anybody or not. Does that make sense? And it leads us down a very backwards way. Uh, one, uh, one famous person, I think it was G.K. Chesterton one time, that said, we have everything backwards today. He said, we had it all backwards. Today, people are usually very, um, they're usually very confident in themselves, but not confident in the truth. That's backwards of the way God designed it to be. Or let me say it my own way. Today, it's often assumed that being sure of truth is arrogant. Like if I say, if all the things I'm saying so far, most people in the world would say, You're, that's arrogant, that's bigoted, you're saying that one way is right, one way is wrong. Who, who are you? It's arrogant. And intolerant. But it's also assumed in our culture that being sure of yourself is desirable and healthy. Do you see the contradiction? And actually how backwards it is? Because according to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're supposed to be the exact opposite of the way around. Very sure about the truth because it came from God's word and it, it binds you like a glue to God. 
not so sure about yourself, especially yourself apart from God. Right? So G.K. Chesterton said, we got it backwards. We're, the man is humble about the truth, but arrogant in himself. When he was meant to be humble in himself and confident about the truth. Do you see? That's why when the serpent came in, Satan, and, and you know, we could, if y'all have questions about like how did Satan get to be Satan and all that kind of stuff, we could talk about that. But somehow, let's just assume somehow he got to be Satan, right? He was an angel that got to be evil. The very thing that he decided to do when he came into the human race to say, I'm going to take them away from their God is I'm going to begin to undermine their desire to listen to God. I want to start there. Uh, He didn't start with, hey, I got an idea. Let's ditch this whole God thing and come with me. I party better than God, you know. He didn't use that kind of blatant lie, did he? He started with a far more subtle and more believable strategy. Do you see? To try to flip things right on their head. He wanted Eve to be sure of herself, but not so sure of what God had said. And when he was successful, everything began to fall apart. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But let me review what we've said so far. Temptation and sin have everything to do with resisting God's word. Temptation is the is the desire or the prompting to not listen to God, sin is actually not listening to him, whether it's in your thoughts, words, or deeds. Um, it gets everything backwards. It puts ourselves in the confident position and God in the less confident position. Now let's go to the second thing. What strategy did the serpent use? What, what strategy does temptation often take in our lives? Well, there's a three-step process, and I wanna, this is where I really want to talk you guys through because I think you'll find it helpful Because you'll see that this is exactly what happens in your own life a lot of times, maybe every day. Satan took a three-step process with Eve. Did you notice that? Um, Now, someone said once that Satan doesn't have any new strategies ever. Do you know why he doesn't have any new strategies? Because they're still working. Yeah. (laughs) He has no need for it because what he did to Eve still works with me, right? And, still, and it still works with you. Uh, let's look at the three steps. Uh, it starts there in verse 1, uh, the second part of verse 1. Uh, we've already noted it. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of, the, of any tree in the garden? What's he doing there? He's trying to question God's word, to get her to question God's word. But then the second step you can find there in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. And so he doesn't want you to eat it because he doesn't want you to be like him. What's he do secondly? He out and out lies. This time he's trying to um, cast doubt on God's goodness. Right? So he tried to question God's word so that he could cast doubt on the goodness and reliability of God. Can you really trust him? And then finally, the clinching thing, the thing that we often associate with temptation, doesn't come till step three. This is the important thing. Uh, step three is there in uh, verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now that last one is what? He appeals to the senses. 
it's such an important thing for you to understand this as a Christian. We always think, what is temptation? Well, it's, it's the sensual appeal of something. But no, no, no. That's, that's where it gets eventually. But before you can ever give in to that, you've already given in to the first two. Right? You don't, Eve would not have given in to the sensual appeal of the fruit had she not first given in to the doubting process of God's word and then secondly doubted his goodness. And it was only then that she was open to the sensual appeal of the fruit that was forbidden to her. And the same thing with me. I'm open to things that are commanded against by God because I've already questioned what his word says and I've already doubted that he's good and trustworthy. All right, let's think about it. Maybe I'd love to hear a little bit from you as well. Uh, Let's go one by one and just say a few more words about each one of these steps. First of all, questioning God's word. Uh, Take a look at how the serpent puts it in verse 1. What does he say that is wrong? Did God actually say? He exaggerates the commandment, right? So already you kind of see it. God had not said you couldn't eat any tree in the garden. But he said, did God actually say you can't eat any tree in the garden? So you can kind of already see within the question itself is a question that he's begging her to ask, right? And then in Eve's response, you get some evidence that she's already starting to question. Because then what does she say that's wrong? Some people point out four different things that she says that's wrong. One of them famously is what, Ben? Don't touch it. So she adds to it, like God never said don't touch the tree in the middle. Now whether he did or not, we don't know, but we're not told that he told them not to touch it as well as not to eat it, but she adds that in. We can't even touch it. What else does she get wrong? There's two trees. She can eat one of them in the middle. That's right. There are two in the middle. One of them she was freely invited to eat, the tree of life. She's forgetting the most important thing. She's forgetting the, the sacrament of her covenant with God, which was to eat of the tree of life. She just completely deletes that. And don't we often, as we question God's word, we delete all the yeses and highlight all the noes. And we think the noes, oh, how oppressive, oh, how sad that God doesn't want me to do all this. But we forget all the things God has said to do freely that are enjoyable and that are great. It's a subtle thing, but, you know, the, the beginnings of a questioning of God's word starts there usually. What else does she get wrong? Anything? This, this next one's much more subtle, and maybe you'll see it, but it has to do with the penalty of disobedience. What's that? Yeah, lest you die, or lest ye die, um, which was different than what God had said, slightly. What had God said? What had God said? You will surely die. And most commentators say that she softens it, lest you die. You know, maybe. Don't, don't, don't eat it or touch it because you might die kind of thing is the way it's phrased there. Rather than you will most surely die. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, I think Satan starts here because he knows we're so prone to this. Uh, He knows how, I mean, human beings are thinkers. We're thinkers, aren't we? Which is a good thing. 
But also, being a thinker can be a bad thing if used poorly. And Satan knows this. Satan's a thinker himself, I think. So he understands. And so he comes in and he starts to get her thinking. Not that thinking's wrong, but he gets her thinking down wrong paths rather than thinking down the paths that God has been encouraging her to think down. Seemingly innocent questions begin to loosen the heart's commitment to obedience to God. Seemingly innocent questions start to loosen Eve's commitment and our commitment to obedience. Also, a lack of precision or conviction in our understanding about God's commandments prepares us to set them aside. This is really important because all of us are guilty of this, right? We lack precision in understanding what God's called us to do. We think, oh, well, if I just get the main things right. You know, most people think that way, right? As long as I, I get the main idea of the Bible, right? It's all good. Love your neighbor as yourself. I got it. And that's actually not true. Why else would God write the whole rest of the Bible if all you needed to know was love your neighbor as yourself? Why would he? No, God gives us many commands in great detail with great precision because he wanted us to know them all very precisely because it's the glue that holds us in our hearts to him and his heart. And so her lack of precision as she's thinking about these seemingly innocent questions that begin to loosen her commitment, that lack of precision begins to kind of pull her back from a desire to obey God at all costs. Have you ever seen that in your own heart? Where a sin begins with a, uh, is that really that big a deal? You know, you could sin worse. Surely God doesn't care who I sleep with, right? Or, you know, lots of people think that. We've thought that probably, you know, from time to time. It's where, it's where it all went wrong, right? It's where it all started. Questioning God's word, opening up seemingly innocent questions that pry away our heart from God. Now, what's the difference between a question like Satan is proposing and a legit question that someone has about the Bible? Because we should say, Questions aren't bad. We, don't, we believe in questions as Christians and at Greater Hope. What's the difference between a good question and a serpent question? Any idea? Sorry? Motive. Yeah. So give me what's the motive in one and the motive in the other, Ryan. Uh, one is trying to keep his rebellion to God. The other is trying to seek precision. Yep. Trying to loosen precision and seek precision. Right? Those are two different things. She wasn't asking, how could I know more about what God is calling me to do so that I might do it better? And Satan wasn't telling her to do that. How could I understand this so that it makes sense to me so that I would be more motivated to do it? That's not what he was asking her to ask. He was asking her to ask, did God actually say, is it really that big a deal? Are you sure he cares? Other thoughts? What's the difference between a good question and a serpent question? A good question can build trust. Yes. Questions do build trust if they're used rightly. We know that in our own relationship. Asking someone a question builds relationship, builds trust. Getting answers to questions builds trust. Right? Unless those questions are from a bad motive. 
Um, and, and we know, we all know we ask both kinds of questions, right, to people and to God. So we ask questions that are more like, I'm trying to find a reason not to, to like you. Sometimes I'm trying to find a reason not to trust you. And then there are other questions of, I really want to trust you. Help me understand. Big difference. Satan makes very subtle, very crafty, you know, in a crafty way, he makes his questions sound like the good ones, but they're really, really not. Well, look at that second step again, doubting the goodness of God. Uh, here, the subtle gives way to the more out-and-out defiance of God. But Satan is still acting subtly, even as he does so. Uh, he says to uh, the woman, uh, you will not surely die. Which is just one word off from what God said. <laughs> Right? It's just one word all. I mean, God said, you will surely die. And he said, you will. He just added not. Right? Now, let's all agree that not is a very, very big deal. Right? Which is a reminder of something Jesus said about God's word. This was Jesus' attitude towards God's word. Not one jot or tittle will pass away from my Father's word. Jot and tittle meaning punctuation mark is what he meant. Not a single punctuation mark will pass away from my father's word very different attitude than I can just add a knot when I want to add it or take away a knot you know you know that famous um, the King James Bible had a famous misprinting in the, in the early runnings of it where the Ten Commandments says thou shalt commit adultery <laughs> and uh, they, they call those the black Bible uh, and, and they, they're actually found in museums you know in England where it says thou shalt commit adultery <laughs> That was a mistake, right? Subtle, one word difference, one, just one word, right? One word off, not a bit, you know, three letters, three letters off, but yet, wow, you know, obviously three huge letters. And Jesus' attitude was every letter matters because it's the glue that ties humans to God. Satan is trying to get, tell her, it doesn't really... Not, or you shall die, or you shall not die. Eh, six and one half dozen. You won't surely die. And then he does his ultimate thing, which is to sow distrust in God. He just doesn't want you to be like him. Eve, let's just face it. God gives commandments because he's just not that kind. He just wants to cramp your style. He wants to suppress who you really are, right? He just wants to get his way all the time. Don't you think you know better than him? That's what he was, that's what he was trying to get her to, to think. And it was successful. How have you seen Satan do that in your heart? To prod you to doubt the goodness of God. I, I can tell you ways that I've seen it in my life. In my own heart. Something happens in my life that I don't like or wasn't expecting. Suddenly I can begin to think, is God really with me? I know he said that thing about, you know, I'll, I'm, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And even though you pass through the waters, there I am with you and the fire will not burn you and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, is he with me? It doesn't feel like he's with me. It's subtle, but when, if I give my heart over to that, and, and I think all of you who have ever experienced that know it's a fight not to give your heart over to those kinds of thoughts and feelings. They can be overwhelming, actually. 
And sometimes they take you in for a long period of time, but you have to fight them. If you don't fight them and you just give yourself over to them, you have completely loosened all motivation for faithfulness and obedience to God. Because that, that tie that made you want to obey God and be faithful to him was his faithfulness given to you first. And if you've, you've questioned that, if you've sort of blocked that out, then your motivation to obey freely as one who has been freely loved is just gone. It begins to evaporate. And I, and I want you to, to start seeing those things as not... I want you to start seeing those, just frankly, as a scheme of Satan in your heart. That's what they are. Undermining your trust in the goodness of God. If Eve, could dis, if, if Eve could doubt or if we can doubt the trustworthiness of God, that in our minds, Satan is thinking, that in our minds will be a sufficient rationalization for our disobedience. If God's not trustworthy, I've got sufficient reason not to obey him. If he's got us there, he's got us. You see that? He's got you already. And so when you get to the third level, which is where, again, we normally think temptation starts at the third level. It's when I see the advertisement that I'm tempted. It's when I, you know, the person acts a certain way towards me that I'm tempted. It's, it's when I act a certain way to a certain person. That's when I'm tempted, right? No. The appeal to Eve's senses and the appeal to our senses of sin only happens after we have already at some level said, uh, I'm not sure if God is trustworthy because I'm not exactly sure what God has said. You say, that's too harsh. That's not what happens in my heart when I'm tempted. I would just encourage you to study your heart more. I'd encourage you to study your heart more because I think you'll find it, it is what's happening. How could something, let's just do this little thought experiment. Are the commandments of God good or not? Are they good or not? Is sin bad or is it not? What in the world? would make something bad seem appealing and something good seem unappealing. The only thing it could be is that the first two things have already worked pretty effectively in getting us to question God's word and question whether or not God himself is good or trustworthy. That's the only thing it could be. This is why Jesus said, it's not... It's not just when you kill somebody that you violated the command not to kill. You already violated it way back when you hated them in your heart. Remember Jesus said that? Uh, it's not just when you find yourself in bed with someone that's not, you're not supposed to be in bed with <laughs> that you've committed adultery. It started all the way back when you looked at them with lustful intent. That's what Jesus was talking about. Like, sin doesn't begin just with a sensual and all of a sudden, boom, I find myself killing somebody. Or boom, you know, I find myself drawn to something that's wrong. It's already happened because my heart is captured by the wrong and in some way inoculated, vaccinated against the right. Now, here's what the Bible says, and this is not encouraging, but this is, but this is what the Bible says about humans. We're all eat up with this from birth. <laughs> what Adam and Eve fell into, we all fell into, and from birth, it just don't work. This thing about the glue between God and people with the word, it doesn't work for anybody. It's all broke. 
until it gets restored through Jesus Christ and through the work of his Holy Spirit. Here's the great thing about Jesus. Let me tell you one more thing. We're just going to skip the last point because you guys know what happened. They knew they were naked. They hid from each other. They tried to hide from God. Sin promises you will be like God if you do this, and you end up just hiding from God and from yourself and from everybody else. Sin is the ultimate bait and switch. We all know it because we've all experienced it. But listen, let me tell you about Jesus before we end because this is great. Eve and Adam brought us into this mess by taking and eating what they weren't supposed to eat. And so Jesus came into this world to take and eat what he never deserved to eat and what he never deserved to drink. As he sat at the communion table, he says, this cup, Father, or in the garden, rather, after the communion table, this cup that you've placed in front of you, let it pass. What cup was he talking about? Well, the Bible talks about a cup full of the wrath of God that every single human being is, deserves to drink, down to its dregs, it says. And, and Jesus says, I, that's a tough thing to drink. If there's any other way, Father, let it, let it pass from me. But if I have to drink it, your will be done, not mine. And he drank the cup. He took and he drank. He took and he ate what he did not deserve to eat or drink. Wrath against sinners. Why? So that he could say to us, come, take and eat. This is my body. Broken for you. Come take and drink. This is my blood spilled for you. Um, Christ is the tree of life made new. To rescue people who don't know anything about sin and temptation and how to fight it. I class myself in that group. To take us from being condemned, slaves to sin and all that, to now being fully once again, glued back to God, his word binding me together. I take and I eat, not forbidden fruit, but I take and eat life as I have communion by faith with Jesus. Now that's good news, isn't it? We could get into all the other things that Jesus did to get up to that point. Remember, Jesus also was tempted by Satan just like this. And if you read uh, the story of Jesus' temptation against the story of Eve's temptation, it's the exact same pattern that I just pointed out to you. Get him to doubt God's word. Get him to question God's goodness. Appeal to his senses in that same order. Again, Satan has no new strategies because they've always been working. Except with Jesus, they did not work. Because Jesus is holy, pure, son of God, the conqueror. And that's why when he sat down to drink the cup, he was drinking something that clearly didn't belong to him. It belonged to me. And when I am invited to sit down at Jesus' table and eat of his body and blood, not just at the communion table, but I mean what the communion table symbolizes, that I actually feed upon Christ, I'm eating something that I never deserved. And yet that very thing is what can give life to me and help me to resist. It helps me, it helps me trust God again which I should have done all along, but now I'm able to do it better because now I know he's loved me and given himself for me. You see? And so next time you're feeling tempted, it's really good to remember where it all started, how it works. Uh, Satan's not that creative, but what he lacks in creativity, he makes up in effectiveness. <laughs> right? He makes up for it because he, he's able to take us down pretty, pretty easily. 
But think about how that is. And remember what Jesus said. Come unto me, you who are labor and are heavy laden in temptation, in sin. I will give you rest. Take and eat. Take my yoke upon you. Eat my body. Eat my blood. Know the life that comes from me alone. So that you can watch and pray against temptations. So that you can become people who are zealous for God's word and for good works. Let me read this quote. Uh, This comes from a... Author on the book of Genesis, this is how we'll end. Um, It summarizes what we just said, and I think it's good. He says, The message to Israel, as Moses wrote this, and to all God's people should be clear, after what we've said tonight. Uh, A thorough knowledge of the Word of God and an unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's no surprise, then, that the Old Testament is filled with instructions for people to know the Word of God, to memorize it, and to use it to discern truth from error. Accordingly, we find Jesus resisted temptation in the wilderness by his superior knowledge of the Word of God. He quoted Deuteronomy three times. Even when Satan was quoting Scripture back to him, he quoted it right back to prove Satan's readings wrong. The temptations offered to Jesus were shrewd. They were temptations to physical and spiritual achievements by disobedience to the Father. Such temptations can only be rejected through a use of Scripture. God's people, therefore, must have a wholehearted trust in the goodness of God, a precise knowledge of the Word of God, and an obedient fear of God Himself. They must remember that they are human and not divine, and therefore must obey Him. True wisdom may be obtained through compliance with the commandments of the Lord. I think that's what Moses intended when he first wrote this, and I think we need it, don't we? Just as much as they needed it when, they, when he first gave it. Let's pray this evening, and then we're going to end by singing together.